Hello! Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hi. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of Slate and the New York Times and places like that. Hello. And we are going to talk about Ozempic. We are going to talk about weight loss drugs. We're going to talk about the effect they are going to have on the economy in general, and in particular, the snack food economy, fast food and Oreos and stuff like that. Are people going to be buying fewer of them because they're all going to be on these miracle drugs? We are going to talk about interest rates, mortgage rates, all of that kind of good stuff because they are hitting levels we have not seen since the Clinton administration. We are going to talk about stock buybacks and other such weird financial ephemera. We're going to talk about how maybe all of this Fed policy is feeding through into people's behavior. We have a whole Slate Plus segment on life expectancy, which is more interesting than it sounds. It is all coming up on Slate Money. Emily. Yeah? I have a theory about calories, which I've shared with you in the Axios Slack, but I want to broaden out to the Slate Money universe, which is that if you look at the share price of Novo Nordisk, which is the Danish company that makes us Empic and Wegovy, what the market is pricing in is a massive increase in the number of people taking these drugs. We know, both in terms of like the medical science of how these drugs work and in terms of actual data from Walmart, which we can talk about, that when people take these drugs, they consume many fewer calories. They just eat a lot less. Yeah. So it kind of stands to reason that if there are millions of people taking these drugs and they're all consuming many fewer calories, then in total, the number of calories being consumed will go down substantially, especially yeah. because the people who take the drugs are very likely to be obese and obese people, mathematically speaking, consume a majority of the calories that are consumed in America. So. If you're in the business of selling calories, if you are a global snacking company, say, then wouldn't it stand to reason that you should be very scared of these drugs? Yes. And it appears that these companies are starting, they wouldn't say that they were scared, but they're watching and observing and maybe scared behind the scenes. So the, the news this week, as you hinted, was that Walmart's U.S. CEO told Bloomberg, like, they know that people who are on Ozempic buy less food. They actually know this because they look at their own data. They have, you know, they have pharmacies and they sell food and they can cross-check the data. It's supposed to be anonymized. It's not um, supposed to be. I think they can just, they know who is buying the medicine. Well, I don't know. They, they say publicly it's anonymized data because they're looking at trends, but... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I think it would be a HIPAA violation know. to yeah. use. But that's not the point. The point is they can see that if you're on Ozempic, you buy less food. And the Walmart US CEO said, we know that when people are buying less food, they buy other stuff, different products at the store. But bottom line, it's less food. And, um, and other food companies are looking at it. And I wrote about, there's this like, really big research note from Morgan Stanley where they project basically that over the next 10 years, 24 million Americans could be taking these drugs, like 7% of the population. And if that pans out, by 2035, every, Americans as a total would be consuming about 1.3% fewer calories. But 
not all calories are the same. So the the calories that that Ozempic users are really cutting back on are like really sugary stuff, really high fat stuff, fast food. So those food companies are going to be hit even harder. You know what I mean? So it's not like going to be felt sort of evenly. Like they point to um, soda industry could really get hit, fast food really get hit, baked goods, stuff like that. So yeah, it's 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 really a big deal, or it. it may be a big deal. I mean, it's still really early with these drugs. They do seem like miracle drugs, but again, we don't know what long-term usage patterns will really be like. And and they do genuinely reduce your appetite rather than just reducing your desire for calories. So, you know, if you're Coca-Cola and you're like, we don't mind if someone stops drinking regular Coke and starts moves over to Diet Coke or Coke Zero or something instead, you know, we make just as much money. That's not what happens with Ozempic. People who have been drinking regular Coke just stop drinking soda in yeah. general because they don't have the appetite to drink it. They don't want to fill up on it. And some of the the food companies are saying, and someone else I spoke to the other day was saying, you know, food companies are really smart. They can adjust to these trends. They can make smaller packages that cost the same. We've talked about shrinkflation before. They can adjust the kinds of foods they sell and, and, you know, start selling more healthier things, more things that appear healthy or lower calorie things or energy bars, which I guess people on Ozempic are more apt to eat like these protein bars and things like that. Yeah. I also wonder if some of it is people substituting away from packaged goods, because I believe everybody has their own personal economic indicators. And so you notice where prices go up in certain categories. And because I have an eight-year-old whose favorite foods are chicken nuggets, Doritos, and Oreos, and some combination of that. (laughs) One thing I I sort of noticed in, in our shopping was that where I saw the biggest price increases were the packaged goods like Oreos and Doritos. And they haven't really come down. And so if you're more ambivalent about what you're eating, you might switch to healthier foods just because, you know, price-wise, it's cheaper. Hmm. And there is evidence, like Morgan Stanley also had some survey and looked at like the mix of things people buy when they're on Ozempic. And they do, you know, transition to like more fruits and vegetables and healthier foods and things like that. So that really fascinates me, that it's not just purely an appetite thing. There's something medical that's prompting people to eat healthier foods it's like their brain is being rewired to just not only eat less but also eat more healthily well that that is literally the the science of it that's uh you know you don't get the same stimulation from eating things that are super sweet or super salty you know all these things that are built into food science to make people you know addicted to these less healthy packaged foods that makes so much sense and so then you're actual rational brain kicks in and you're like, well, I shouldn't be eating this junk food. I should be eating proper food. And so you go out and eat proper food because you don't have the craving for junk food anymore. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. People on Ozempic say they're, they, there's no more food noise. And I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but I super can where you're like always thinking about what you're going to eat next. What's my next snack? What are we having for dinner? Like, well, I ate this you know, an hour ago, so I probably could have this now. Like that all just like goes away, which sounds incredible. And then, yeah, and then you can kind of think clearly and like most people don't want to eat like a ton of ice cream or a bag of Doritos, right? So if your brain can help you with that, yeah, you're going to transition to salad because why wouldn't you? So what I'm doing is I'm looking at the share prices of the snacking and the soda companies and the fast food companies and they aren't moving yet. And I'm looking at the share price of, of Novo Nordisk and it very much is moving up and to the right. And I'm like, 
one of these is wrong. And what we've been talking about is the world in which, you know, the other shoe has yet to drop in terms of the snacking companies. But what if it's the other way around? What if the snacking companies are basically like, everyone's always going to want to snack, we have the science down, and it's the Novo Nordisk bubble that is going to burst. And in fact, these drugs are not going to be taken by 7% of the US population in perpetuity. I think that's a really good question. And I don't think anyone actually knows the answer. And um, I, I listen to a lot to this great podcast called Maintenance Phase. It's Michael Hobbs and Aubrey Gordon. And they talk about all like the myths and misconceptions in the diet and nutrition industry. And they had something recently on, if not FenFen, then maybe stomach surgery, you know, and they pointed out like there are often come along these sort of like miracle solutions or things that people think are really going to quote solve the obesity problem in America and they often just don't pan out and i think so far ozempic is getting this like amazing media coverage and it seems like this miracle but it's really early and we know from like so many years of experience that these things often backfire we already know that when people go off these drugs they gain the weight back right away and we know the drugs are really expensive. So I think it is a really big question, like this estimate from Morgan Stanley on 24 million people, 7% of the U.S. population is pretty optimistic given those past trends. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it is sort of good that we're seeing that, though, because I feel like, uh, you know, fat phobia is a big thing. And it just sort of demonstrates that, you know, being overweight in most cases is not an issue of willpower. If you can just, you know reverse it with Ozempic, then the implications yeah. of that are pretty big. I do think that, you know, right now the Ozempic taking classes are, you know, on the Upper East Side and in Hollywood, and it's a bunch of very rich people who are happy to pay out of pocket an enormous amount of money in order for the, you know, Novo Nordisk share price to become justified. We're going to have to see a lot more of these drugs produced and a lot more of them just prescribed and filled on regular old health insurance and probably on Medicare and Medicaid. And that's going to be the, you know, the big dam bursting, I think, if, is, if and when that happens. Yeah, I think that's totally right. Yes. If more insurers don't cover these drugs, then eventually the fad of them will probably end at some point. <laughs> or it will just, you know, remain a sort of niche rich people thing and it won't mm -hmm. have that kind of mass market effect that we've been talking about. Right. Yeah, the insurers have to step up, but I I would imagine that that will happen. I, I think yeah, that seems to be what's being priced in not only by Novo Nordisk but even by Morgan Stanley. So let's move on to interest rates which we're rapidly converging right now on a pair of numbers that you know is going to wind up getting flashed across every TV news screen. Well, at least one of them will. I like to say that the 30-year fixed rate mortgage rate is the second most salient price in the U.S. economy. Number one is the price of gas. Number two is the cost of a mortgage. It's the number that people know if they don't know any other number, any other price of anything. What about uh, packaged Oreos? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> What's that, like two ninety nine? How, how much is a pack of Oreos? It's like I six, have literally no idea. Six fifty for family size? Yeah. How many Oreos do you get for $6.50? I'm not sure. I, don't, I never eat them. 
You don't eat them? You don't yeah. work it out on a per Oreo basis? I don't. <laughs> I would totally be doing that. But back to interest rates, we're about to hit the big number that finance markets care about, which is 5% on the 10-year treasury bond. And with that, we're going to probably at around the same time hit the big number that Americans care about, which is 8% on fixed rate mortgages. Both of these are very high numbers. I would make the case that 8% on mortgages is super, super high, while 5% on treasuries is high, but like within the realm of normal in the kind of long-term sense of things. But Emily, what's your sort of take? Is this terrifying? Is this like, oh my God, we've managed to get this far and we're not in recession and the sky is, you know, still blue and what were we worried about? Yeah, I kind of think the sky is still blue and what were we worried about, but I'm not sure. I mean, it's still so early. I mean, one thing that's nice now, I mean, 8% 30-year mortgages are not nice and no one seems to be really buying houses anymore. Home sales have really plummeted and 8% mortgages have really driven affordability out the window because home prices keep going up. So that's not good. That's not great. And it's I, not I'm like not sure have- it's not great, to be honest. As the in-house, you know, home oh, ownership skeptic, skeptic we, most of the millennials have already bought houses at this point. There isn't like a massive pool of unwilling renters out there right now. That pool is probably smaller than it's ever been. And if people can't afford to buy into the housing market, that's kind of fine i mean like it's it's like if you're the federal reserve and you want to slow down the economy like hurting those people who are just going to have to rent for a bit longer is it they're not the most vulnerable part of the population maybe not but we do have you know policy that's really geared toward advantaging homeowners which is part of the reason why in america at least people think oh i should buy a home i think it's slowing down the the housing market there are implications for economic mobility. I mean, a lot of people are stuck where they are and you want to have an economy that's dynamic where people can move and they can yeah, that, that's live in the, different that's places. That's called the nation of renters. Renters can move much well, more easily than homeowners. Yes, but we're not a nation of renters, right? <laughs> the homeownership is, rate is what, like 60-ish percent or something? No, no, you're, you're absolutely right that this is the other group of people who are harmed by high mortgage rates. It's not just the people who are renting and want to buy. It's also the people who own and who want to move, but who feel like they can't move because that would involve selling and buying. And if you sell and buy somewhere for the same price, your mortgage basically doubles. And you're like, well, why would, you know, I can't afford to buy a house of the same value as the one that I'm selling. So that that definitely sort of gums up the housing market. And then meanwhile, there's a rental market in the US where rent prices, they aren't going up as fast as they were during like the soaring inflation. But they're, I think rents are overall maybe like 30, 40% higher than they were before the pandemic. And because there's nothing going on in the housing market and because the people who can't buy homes are kind of stuck renting and rents are really unaffordable and we have a homelessness problem in this country that keeps getting worse because home prices and rent prices are so high. So I feel like 8% mortgages are not helping with anything. I'm not going to fix the, the homelessness problem with through, through like mortgage rates. Like the only way that that gets fixed, well, there's, you know, we can have a whole other segment on that. That's a whole other but thing. The, but weirdly, like if rents and mortgage rates both stay high for a while, I do have this niggling hope that will cause 
the home ownership rate to drop and more people to be renting, which would be a good thing. That all those people I was talking about who want to move and can't or don't feel that they can, instead of selling their house and buying a different one, will choose to rent out their house because rents are so high and then just rent wherever they want to move to. And so you get a much, you know, you get a greater supply of rental properties on the market and that could help. But you're absolutely right. That's not happening yet. But I don't think that would be a big enough thing to actually push down rent. Yeah, prices. I don't either. Like, that's not going to flood. Most people don't yeah, want to no, be I a mean, landlord. The only thing, you know, again, that is really going to bring down house prices, bring down rent prices, is more construction. And we are making it more expensive to do construction because we have high interest rates because the 10-year interest rates are at 47 4.8%. This number is, you know, definitely high by what we've become used to over the past 15, 20 years, it kind of breaks down to high but not crazy numbers in that if you look at what they call the 10-year break-evens, if you look at the inflation-protected treasury bonds, the breakdown is roughly 2.3% in terms of expected inflation on average over the next 10 years, which seems fine. It's like perfectly normal. And then about... 2.4-2.5% in terms of real interest rates over the next 10 years. Which again, you know, if you lend the government money for 10 years, you get 2.5% back in real terms. You know, it's high, but it's not crazy. It's not like, whoa, that's high. Whereas the 8% mortgage, you're like, okay, that really is high because you have that extra 3 percentage points of interest on top of the 5% interest rates right the and that difference between eight and five is very wide mortgages are not normally three points higher than long-term interest rates and in my newsletter this week i go into quite a bit of gory detail about why that is but i think that is the bit which really needs to come down in order for mortgage rates to start becoming remotely sensible well, just to go back to yields, I mean, we, we are the 30 years at the highest since 07, but the Fed also doesn't seem terribly concerned about it because they think no, that's that, what the Fed wants, right? This is exactly what the Fed has been trying to do with yeah. its hiking cycle. Yeah. Well, there's this really interesting dynamic, too. So we talked about mortgage rates going up and why that's like bad, but interest rates going up isn't necessarily bad for people, especially the same people we talked about who can't move from their houses. They're basically sitting in a house which is an increasing asset. The value of the home is going up. They're insulated from rising mortgage rates and whatever cash they have, they can now put in treasury bonds or a savings account. You can buy a CD that earns 5% interest now and make really good interest on your cash. So rising interest rates, I know a lot of people are freaking out and worried about them, but there's a good side to them. People actually can make money with their cash now, which hasn't been a thing for a really long time. We were living in a like essentially a free money world until I don't know, like a year or so ago when the Fed started raising rates. Yeah, exactly. Like the high interest rates are good for savers, right? They're bad for mm -hmm. borrowers, good for savers. Borrowers, on the one hand, are people with mortgages, but also the homeowning classes are also the savers in the economy, generally speaking. Especially if you managed to get your mortgage while interest rates were, you know, mortgage rates were 3%. Which was most people. Which is most people. Then you win twice, right? Because you, A, are still paying a very low mortgage rate, and B, I'm now making 5% on your 
cash savings, which is even higher than your mortgage rate. It's it's amazing. And it's a win for a lot of homeowners. So like when people start complaining so much about, oh, you know, these interest rates are going to really devastate the economy. It's like, well, no, they're just going to create a huge amount of interest income for millions of Americans who have savings. And that interest income is going to keep the economy going. Yeah. Interest income for companies too, right? Companies can use, can take their free cash and put them in treasuries also and make a lot of money. Yeah. That actually, Emily, is a really good segue into the other thing that we wanted to talk about this week, which is stock buybacks. For a lot of that Zerpy period, a lot of that low interest rate period, what companies would do is they'd go out into the markets and borrow long term at incredibly low interest rates of, you know, 2% or 3% or something. And then they'd take that money that they borrowed and instead of investing it in the business, they would just buy back stock. And that was a way of effectively levering up the company, you know, creating a cap structure where there's more debt and less equity. And that's a way of sort of goosing equity returns and shareholders love it because they don't need to pay tax on dividends because there aren't any dividends because they're doing stock buybacks instead there's a lot of like reasons why companies do that but it only makes sense in a low interest environment right when it costs you five six seven eight percent to borrow money you're not going to be taking out that kind of a loan to buy back your stock that's crazy so what we've seen is a massive decline in the number of stock buybacks. It's gone down by more than $100 billion a quarter for the past five quarters. And that is partially a function of just this interest rate dynamic. It's also partially a fact that now, as of January this year, there's an extra 1% tax on stock buybacks that didn't used to exist before. And I read an interesting note from Howard Silverblatt at S&P, who was saying, that's one of the very few taxes that populist Republicans can get behind. And if there's going to be a whole bunch of new fiscal negotiations and attempts to reduce the deficit and that kind of thing, then probably that buyback tax is going to go up because no one really hates it. But how effective will it be if companies have already stopped doing so many buybacks? There's still a long way to go. They're still doing, you know, well over $100 billion of buybacks a quarter. So there's a there's a little bit extra we can juice out of that orange before it gets Yeah, pulled. I'm also skeptical that the 1% tax is really having much of an effect. I, I think interest rates are driving it much more heavily. Yeah, it's the interest rates that drive it, is driving the reduction in buybacks, not the tax. It's hard to disaggregate, but... What we're seeing is that this is the kind of thing that high interest rates do, right? They affect weird corporate finance decisions in terms of what is the optimal capital structure? Should I do a buyback? Should I be like borrowing more money? Should I be borrowing fixed rate or floating rate? You know, those kind of things, which people on Wall Street, you know, obviously care very much about. But in terms of Main Street doesn't seem to have a lot of effect. And what I'm kind of interested in, given that we've talked about mortgages and putting mortgages to one side, what, where and how are interest rates actually affecting the sort of real economy? And you see it a little bit on car loans are becoming a bit, bit more expensive. Credit card rates are becoming a bit more expensive. But I, I don't see it really changing behavior very much. Well, it has cut back on the shenanigans. Buybacks would be a good example, right? That's like a corporate shenanigan that, you know, Elizabeth Warren, progressives, liberals, Democrats, everyone was very upset about stock buybacks and how it's just financial engineering. Yeah, they were. And I never understood why. I, I always come so much about them. The idea is that that money, instead of being returned to shareholders, should be 
plowed back into the company or given to workers. Yeah, pay your workers. And which is why politically, I think it, it actually is sort of a big issue now that unionization is is more in the news cycle and people are more aware of what unions are complaining about and stock buybacks is a factor in that. I think that's just like the, the deep disconnect between the corporate finance folks and the politicians. It's that the politicians are like, well, if you don't do it, if you don't spend it on buybacks, then you'll reinvest it in the company or give people raises. Whereas the corporate finance folks are like, if we don't do it on buybacks, we'll just do it on dividends. You know, it's just like, because a buyback is basically just a, a type of dividend. They're both ways of returning money to shareholders. But the free money and the the high interest rates has also curbed crypto. It has curbed a lot of like yeah, crazy that's, that's stuff. not real economy, right? That's all weird fake economy, finance, Wall Streety type stuff. I mean, it's it wasn't real. the quote unquote real economy, but do you remember the Super Bowl? No, you don't. You don't. But there, you okay, remember there the, were cri- the, we're going to see fewer <laughs> crypto ads in the Super Bowl again. That doesn't change anything. But there's there's less mania in the population. That's I don't know if that's yes. the real economy, but it's different. It's more conservative. It's more like take your cash and put it in a savings account. What's going on with the Treasury Direct website? I should buy bonds versus like GameStop seems like a bad place, but I don't know. Everyone's doing it. You know, it's just less reckless. Yeah. Yes, you're absolutely right. And, you know, not to be that guy, but I do have two chapters of my book about this, which it was all about the way that zero interest rates create manias and created like the crypto bubble and explaining, you know, this get rich quick mentality that took over the world, especially in early 2021. And that is gone, right? We don't have that right now. High interest rates are a great way of stopping that. And it will come back at some point, but it's not going to come back for a while. And so long as rates are where they are, and you can earn 5% on treasury bonds, then at that point, you start going back to the like, ooh, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world kind of mindset. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I can just compound my money for the next however many decades at 5% and I'll get rich. And you can, and it works in this kind of interest rate environment. So I do think you're right that behaviorally speaking, when it comes to personal finances, the general outlook has become quite rationally much more conservative. Yeah. And then speaking of becoming more conservative, I think the rising interest rates, you're starting to see already deficit chatter and worries about, you know, long-term fiscal responsibility and sustainability and the deficit's going to be too high because, you know, the cost of servicing the debt now is a lot higher. And concerns like that have a tendency in the United States to really bubble over and lead to a lot of extreme cutting. So I wonder if that's what's in store as well. I don't think they do. Historically speaking, I can't think of a time when there's been a massive sort of consensus that the fiscal deficit is too big and then the result has been huge cuts to government spending. Generally speaking, you know, there are small cuts here and there and like a few tax hikes here and there and like we kind of muddle through. Mm. One of the points that Moody's made in their note saying they were thinking about downgrading the United States is that they're looking at the dysfunction in Congress and basically saying there is absolutely no way that Congress is going to be able to agree on anything. And certainly not the kind of significant cuts to entitlements to to Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid that would be necessary to really move the needle on spending. So given that the choice is really we have to raise taxes or we just muddle through with high deficits and high debt servicing costs, the 
by far the more likely outcome is we wind up muddling through with high deficits and high debt servicing costs. And they were saying that, and because of that's why they minded to possibly downgrade the United mm-hmm. States debt credit rating. Yeah, that makes sense. People would want to cut the deficit, but Congress can't do anything and probably won't act on that necessity. So we'll just keep blindly running forward into a ditch. You know, I, I'm relatively sanguine about the United States prints dollars, right? I mean, like we we issue debt in dollars and we service debt in dollars and it's all domestic currency and we have that ability. And I don't think that the deficit or the national debt is a major crisis in the making. But yeah, I think you're right that there's going to start becoming something of a consensus that, you know, sucks teeth, this is a bad thing, we ought to do something about it. Well, it's always been wielded as a political issue and largely in, in the service of benefiting Republicans who are frankly, you know, have had higher deficits and debt levels than Democrats, but because they're perceived as the party of economics and business, it's easy for Republicans to just point to a Democrat and say, this is why. And that's why Republicans run on it, even though their record is worse. (laughs) Because most people don't understand, you know, A, the difference between the debt and the deficit or any of these issues. They just think that debt is bad. Right. It's that deep sort of German soul in the American psyche where, you know, the word for bond in German is schuld, which also means guilt. Well, right now, debt is pretty good. If you picked it up in 2021 and you're sitting on a 3% mortgage and you can use your cash to earn 5% somewhere else. So, you know, it's all relative. Yeah. And that's why corporations are using their cash to earn interest rather than to do stock buyback. Uh, We should have a numbers round, people. Elizabeth, do you have a number? My number is 4.8 and it's a percentage and it's the number of truckers in America who are women. 4.8. Yeah. Wow. And that's up from 4% a decade ago. But it's very hard for women to get into the trucking industry because even though this is technically illegal, uh, a lot of trucking companies have decided that women who want to go into the trucking have to be trained by another woman. And because there aren't very many women to start with, well, because sometimes the, and this is a not a good excuse, they're worried about sexual harassment lawsuits Sometimes in training, uh, you have these big trucks where the truckers sleep in the back in a sleeper car, whatever. And so there's some, I guess, concern that if you have a man training a woman, that that might be a sexual harassment situation potentially. But the solution to that is, you know, the trucking companies should pay for hotel rooms (laughs) when they're doing training, if that kind of pairing happens, and also just make sure that everybody's trained around issues of sexual harassment. They just don't want to pay for it. So there's a lot of informal knocking women who are applying for trucking jobs out of the running. This is an industry that complains a lot about worker shortages. Yeah. And they're just cutting out like half the population. Basically. (laughs) On one level, I can understand that, you know, most truck stops don't have attached hotel rooms like it's you know the pay for a hotel room thing is probably easier said than well done. this is just during training this is not for general you know work trucking but yeah in in principle the idea that the way that you get desperately needed new labor into a workforce is by taking a bunch of women and hiring them is something that has worked over and over again in many different industries in many different countries and it would seem to be a good idea for the trucking industry too. Yeah, duh. (laughs) (laughs) Emily, what's your number? My number is also a percent, 40, 40%. That is the discount Sam Bankman-Fried received on his suit 
that he bought at Macy's to wear <laughs> a trial this week. Yes, the, the fraud trial of Sam Bankman-Fried kicked off this week, the same week that there was another trial of some other guy. I forget his name. He was the president, uh, whatever. And yeah, and Sam Bankman-Fried is sporting a whole new vibe and look. He cut his hair, apparently, an inmate. He got a prison haircut. So apparently some other inmate cut his hair. He's slimmed down because he's not getting the food. He's vegan, and he's apparently only eating like bread or something in prison, and he's much more chill. I talked about this all on a different Slate podcast, if you want to listen to that, at What Next TBD. The, that's a, so blog rolly of me. I never do that, but, but that's well, good. I don't no, like, do. Listen to more Slate podcasts. Yeah. Buy yourself a Slate Plus membership. Do all the things. Do the things. My number is 14. I love this number. 14 is the number of concrete bananas <laughs> that Pretty Cool sold in three days from Saturday through Monday after our podcast came out last week. Whoa. Are we getting kickbacks? <laughs> Are you an influencer now? Is that We're influencers <laughs> now. That was just directly through their website. Mostly like 85% of their business, they tell me, is but oh. suddenly they they had a whole bunch of slate money listeners coming to their website. Well a whole bunch, but 14 <laughs> slate money listeners. <laughs> that's a lot if that was you're talking about bananas, that's a big concrete bunch. Bananas, and that's just that's the it. bananas. What I kind of hope is that it was one person just buying four 14 bananas and yeah. giving them all out as Christmas presents. That would be a good Christmas present. It really would. So well done, Slate Money folks, for taking our advice and buying the concrete bananas. They will make <laughs> you very happy. But yes, if you ordered a banana and you get it and you like it, let, let us know, slatemoney at slate.com or anything else. Many thanks to Jessamyn Molly for producing the show and to Ben Richmond here in Brooklyn. And we will be back on Monday with the first of our Slate Money Goes to the Movies episodes. We're going to be talking about Barbie with the one and only Sheena Ross. So all that's coming up on Slate Money. Slate Money.